Soul Savings Podcast Show, y'all. Your host, Q Lynn. Got a special guest this episode. Uh, yeah, just fantastic. I'm going to get straight to it. I I usually do a warm-up and tell a joke or two before. I'm just going to get straight to it because, you know, we got we got, we got got some things to get to. And so this brother right here that I'm getting ready to introduce, fantastic music producer, pianist. I believe he plays multiple instruments. You play multiple instruments or you just play the piano? Multiple instruments. Multiple. multiple, sorry. Multiple. Okay. Multi-instrumentalist as a word. I'm trying to learn how to say it. I'm not good at it. (laughs) Good at words, apparently. But no, a fantastic music producer. He has a new project he's getting ready to release uh, next month. And I had to have him on. And he's also into a whole lot of stuff we're going to get into in terms of anime, production. He got got all kinds of stuff going on. But y'all give it up right now. Mr. Badgett, aka Lee, how you doing? Hey, I am good. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you for having me. This has been no problem. Always a fun experience when well, I do this with you. So thank you for inviting me back on. No problem. Rob queued up the art. He got Arsenio call Arsenio Hall claps going for you right now. Going okay, on. there you go. <laughs> He's putting Ooh, it up. So yeah. thank you so much for <laughs> taking time out of your schedule so we could talk. Uh, you've been on my my past radio show. We, I had you on a couple, or I forgot how many times I had you on. I think it was like three or four times I had you on. Yeah, on yeah. The, uh, my past radio show. But this one, I, I can't remember. I don't think I asked you all these questions whenever I had you on the last time. But basically, I'm going to get to this segment with all the musical guests I like to call the musical genesis. We're going to get to the beginning of your story. And okay. what we're going to start with is... What was your first introduction to music? I would say the earliest memory I have is um, I was about four years old. And it's one of my earliest childhood memories. And I remember being at church. And I remember my organist, the organist at the church, saying something at the time like, you have to give, son. You have to give. And I'm four years old, so I'm like, okay. So what they did is they put me on a drum set. And he's like, hey, watch this do kick snare kick snare and I did kick snare like right away and that's like the moment I got introduced to music because literally after that I've been playing in drums since I was four years old so I've been mm-hmm. in church one way or another and it all started with me being a, a drummer at four years old not knowing I mean it was already in me so that was my introduction to mm-hmm. music and then from there you know that, that knowledge evolves and so your first question was playing music in church what was it what was that experience like being in church in terms of like everything that you were trying to process with uh was it just like having fun like did you look at it having fun or was it like learning who who uh, in terms of just the environment like what how did you take all that in playing in church yeah I, i don't know how you feel but i know just like growing up in the church i think we're like the last generation that really grew up in the church because like with the 90s and stuff 
it was kind of cool to be in church and that was a big part of our culture and me being from arizona you know there's not a lot of culture out here um just not in general um all the black people out here you know they congregate at church that's the only time you see black people in arizona is at church or like a you know a black history event or something but mostly church that's how you build your network and stuff so it was just ingrained for me from day one just the, how to deal with people how to you know how to learn how to you know put yourself in the right positions to you know be in these little committees or these choirs or whatever i know for me growing up like the choir was a big deal like the the biggest deal you judge churches by how the choirs were and i was a choir boy my mom was a minister of music my dad was a pastor so one way or another i was in church but it was really cool because you know there's a lot to do at the church and this is before cell phones before internet and everything of that sort so i feel like i had like a real childhood you know outside of the internet mm -hmm. Yeah, I felt the same because it was like growing in church. That was like the big thing, like being in the choir. And then uh, musician-wise, it was like sort of like a hierarchy with what instrument you could play. So if you got a chance to like jump on an instrument, that was a big deal growing up, especially like um, I think the youngest one, because usually the set ones, like most of my mentors were like, they were like plus 40. So they were like... Yep. The organists, they were all up in age. So the drummer, drummer was usually the youngest one. And so, uh, yep. and they would switch them in and out. So if you got a chance to stay on, that meant you were good. But if you wasn't playing it right, they would quickly take you off of it. So, yeah, but yeah, you know, I, it was, it was definitely a big deal and it was kind of intimidating. I think for me, it was just taking in. I didn't really start understanding what everybody was doing until I got, until I was a teenager. I didn't really, yeah. cause it was like. Cause it was like you get like sonically like how everything is sounding and it's like oh this is cool but you're not really paying attention you just trying to play it right but you're not really taking in everything but i definitely relate to that definitely being a choir yeah. I, I went from that to joining a choir and then i went back to playing music but yeah uh and then what what denomination did you did you grow up in so i grew up southern baptist and i actually okay. could sing so that Yes, yeah, so I, I I can actually sing, but then I got puberty and you know I got this deep baritone now. I just I just jumped overnight, so I had to learn how to play in order to stay around a choir. Mm -hmm. And luckily, I had piano lessons when I was five or six years old. I knew some basic theory, but I didn't really take it seriously until I got to college. And then from there, having all that church training, went up in the church. It was just a matter of just my skills catching up to that, to that point because I knew church, but now I got all these skills that. I've been sitting at the back burner for so long and now I could put now I, now I can learn about the Stevies and learn about music, jazz music and everything of that sort. Mm -hmm. How music works. So church. that whole time period in church, was it did you play in school too or was it just in church? So I, I played trumpet get... and I played oh. trumpet uh for about seven years and then I got braces, so I couldn't play trumpet anymore. So uh, it was just a keyboard laying around at the house. I'm like, well, I got these basic theories and stuff. And I've had some really cool in, mm -hmm. experiences with like organists, like like Hammond Man used mm -hmm. to play at our church. Kurt Franklin's came to our church twice and played on the organ. Oh, wow. And that to me, well, he's like I my first. Telling me that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like I've always been around like really good organists and stuff. So just having an organist teach you how to play and everything, it changed everything for me. So. 
I just had all the skills on standby. So once I got to college, I was like, all right, I have these skills. Let me just kind of get in the shed and figure out what this is. What this is. So when you went to college, were you studying uh, music in college or how'd that go? So <laughs> at that point, that's when I started doing like gigs. So like, um, like the church, like a lot of us in Arizona, especially in Tucson, we all grew up like as church musicians and stuff. So now it's like trying to do shows and stuff, do secular gigs and stuff. So at college, I would throw like, you know, I'll have these little, these little gigs around campus and stuff. And with my guy, my guy, guy Kelton Jones, he's actually in London right now, like killing it and everything. So um, that to me was like my way of incorporating college and music. I did try to audition for the, the music school at University of Arizona. And me being the church kid, I just started playing what I knew, church. I need to play some jazz chords here and there and here and there. And then she's like, oh, that sounds really pretty. She grabs like a sheet of music, puts it on the stand, and she's like, can you read this? And I'm like, I can sight read, but I can't sight read piano. So she's like, you know what, sweetheart? You're better off not doing music school because she's like, you don't have to read this in order to even do stuff. But she's like, you're already ahead. Just learn as you go. Right. Wow. So I was like, all right, I'll go back and to doing so gigs and playing the church. <laughs> what? So you were doing professional gigs while you were in college? Yes. Um, at that point, I was playing at my dad's church, Rising Star Baptist Church in Tucson. And um, like I said, I started out really bad. I was really terrible. I could remember just like people being like, just keep at it, Kelvin. You'll get it one day. You'll get it one day. And then from there, just going through all that, just, just failing, just failing nonstop. And. <laughs> Not, but not giving up. Like not at that point, we, yeah, just failing nonstop. But at that point, we were playing three times. A, we had three services on Sunday. It was a seven thirty, nine thirty, and eleven thirty. So if I didn't get it right on the seven thirty, I'm like, I'm gonna get it right by this series. All right, eleven thirty. I'm feeling good about it. So I just kind of built up that rhythm. That's how I started getting better. Next, I was all in college, all college. That's crazy. three services every Sunday. Three services at a Baptist church. So how many services you said? Three services you did? Three services. For that church That's or right. other churches? Uh, my church and then sometimes other churches too. We would do really cool things around the community. We go to different churches. I had a gospel group called Glorified and it was like a nice group of uh, like young adults and stuff. So we would do like original songs all around Tucson and stuff. And this is all going on while I'm in college. So I was a really busy person. Just but I wasn't playing at my church. I was playing at another church. Or I was doing stuff with my own gospel group, things of that sort. So I was oh, a busy so person. Oh man, you had a whole lot going on. So yeah, what was I, that like trying dude, to balance that while you were in Weird. school? So it was just like, because when I was in college, that's what I was doing too. It was like I was just at that time I was just taking any gig that I could, mm -hmm. and it was just like working. Like I think did about that's when it was back in the day when I don't know if, how, how it was like for you doing R and B gigs. I did most r&b gigs then i didn't really start venturing out to other genres till i started you know moving up or whatever but when i did mm -hmm. r&b gigs we had i had to do about eight shows a week It'd oh be wow like, we do four we do two start from thursday it was like two a night and so it worked that way sometimes it was out of state and then sometimes it was in the in uh oklahoma or no not in oklahoma in texas i would go to because oklahoma didn't really I, I grew up in oklahoma so they didn't really have a, yeah I didn't really find out about their scene until I was like much older and I was like, Oh, I didn't even know y'all had an R and B scene here. But 
but uh so when you were in college did you just uh okay i'm just gonna save my money my gig money what was the process like like okay you're in a group you're in a gospel group you're doing all that what was the process in terms of like what what were you what was the i guess the i i should say the plan of what you were trying to do while you were in college with taking on all those gigs yeah so um basically once i started playing in church there was a gentleman uh that I consider him like one of my mentors. He's the person that taught me this direction. Um, his name is David Baxter. And so like he, we were all hanging around and stuff. He was, um, he's an older gentleman like him and his wife. And we were all really close and everything. And he's actually the person that convinced me to marry my wife, believe it or not. So shout out to the Bax. But uh, so he would invite me to his house for production. He's like, I got this new Rolling Phantom, you know, saying I got this stuff set up. Come take a look at it, man. And everything and that sort. So I already had like some gas chops. So now my game exposed to the studio side of things. So he taught me everything I know about production. So I remember just sitting at his house and like you know I would just sit at his panel for hours. I would go to school, do my church services, but like Thursday and Friday I would spend at his house and I'm just trying to figure out the fan. I'm like, okay, how you do the sequencing? Okay, these drums sound cool and everything. And then Bash comes in with these like seat these big this big CD press machine. So, you know what? We can actually make our own music, our own CDs doing this. I'm like, oh, bet. So, now I started just making beats and stuff from there. So, now I got the gospel side and the production side, and I'm growing at the same time. So, it just really had to really expand what I knew about music. And um, Bax was the first person to do that. And so, through college to about 25, it was free services on Sunday. I wasn't in service. I was in the studio. I was at his house just learning how to produce how to what to listen to what to let what kind of snare what it makes this sound this sound doesn't go this sound like the real bare like essentials of production so with that like going into it was there like um so you were just taking it all in in terms of like learning like being a student of music it was like okay learning the snares learning that stuff was that like the I guess the the welcome train of like doing it professionally as a music producer. Or when did that start? Did it happen in college or did it happen like down the line? So being in Tucson, there wasn't really nobody really doing anything, especially from an R and B standpoint. There was a lot of Motown mm. stuff. There's a lot of cover bands in Arizona. It's like a cover band capital of mm. the United States because if you want to work in a as in a cover band, come to Arizona. There's so many cover bands, and I don't mean that as an insult. It's just that right. in terms of like creative things like R&B and stuff. Nobody was really doing anything in Tucson. So I started kind of putting the math together. I'm like, okay, you know, I have this church knowledge. Now I got this production knowledge. I can't really, I tried producing the album with the gospel group. It it, it fell apart <laughs> spectacularly. And I still have egg on my face for that. Um, and so I was like, all right. Yeah. yeah, so I was like, you know, it's kind of cool. I had a conversation with God. I was like, all right, if I learn how to like produce and like do being these, like be a producer, I can have a better experience in terms of how to finish a project and work with people and work with a song and know what to look for. So, like I said, just the, the second failure, just I did an album, it sounds terrible, it sounds so trash. I have like I was like in a Kirk Franklin place, so I'm like, like, uh, yeah, all the ad libs and stuff on the gospel stuff. Okay. So, I was still. <laughs> It was cool, but it was really corny. But um, right. okay. looking back, looking back, I was like, okay, that, it just, I'm just like, okay, I need to learn as much as possible about production so I don't fail like that again. So, there you have it. 
it's always a black i mean for looking at that time period it's like so much you didn't know when you were doing it it was like so much yeah. shit that i was just i think well my story is different because i started out just doing session work before i started playing in church i like did it backwards oh, wow. i mean backwards, in yeah. terms of um learning like of course like eight nine years old you're playing drums but i wasn't taking it seriously it wasn't until i started doing studio work with my friend and then it kind of spiraled into like a career and then but the whole learning to me i feel like i give myself like tips. i don't know because i say this with other musicians in terms of like i like you know like people be like oh you play great like you're dope you're this or that or whatever i didn't even take that in it was just like no nah, i'm just gonna stay focused on getting yeah. better and so it went until like my 10th year to where it's like okay i until i did it professionally because i feel like you get my 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 ideology was like you take all that in then you're going to get that track because there's so many musicians that they'll get one big gig like a arena tour gig or theater tour and they'll live off that shit for like however many years i work with so-and-so like yeah that was like three years ago yeah <laughs> it's like yeah. What, what are you doing and it's like for me i didn't want to because i seen so many musicians like that and i was like it's like a thing to where you see a musician and I don't want to be like that. <laughs> it's like, you know, and I would just observe that behavior where they're like assholes. Like they, they treat the artists like, oh, this is just some bullshit. Like, you know, like they go from doing arena and then they'll go back to doing clubs or lives again. And they be like, oh, this is just something until I was like, I'm never going to be like that. And it was taking in all that shit of just not being a struggling musician where I was like, I'm not going to be that. Did you, what was your perspective like in in that, in that journey? Um, it's funny you say that about musicians, because I think there's like a musician personality that you kind of have to turn off and on, you know what I mean? So like, and a lot of musicians don't, can't, you know, they can't differentiate between like your musician side and your musician personality. Your musician personality plays a part in your musician style in terms of how you approach music, how you project to people and everything of that sort. So I think you have to separate the two. And fortunately for me, I think my personality has a lot to do with how I play music and how I present music. Um, because um, when people are able to connect with you without seeing how talented that you are, like when they're able to connect with you just on a real, real level, once they see that talent come out and they just, they just really just accentuates what you are as a musician is you're just trying to connect with people. You have this one gift and unique gift that not a lot of other people have and you're using it to connect people to a higher power or to yourself or just to the moment like you just want to capture the moment and i think having a personality it plays a, a drastic role in terms of the greats and the people that are good and the people that are just doing it just to do it like the greats have personality yeah. name a great producer or musician that what didn't have a personality didn't they have a personality you weren't great right and that's the thing it's the like I, I call it it was just a the last episode i did we were talking about likability when it came to marketing like in the workplace like if you come from that because i didn't even realize i had that factor to me because it because i didn't really start developing like communication skills like until i was on the road because you know you be gone when you tour you meet so many different people whether it's artists, even at the hotels, you meet so many different people. And it's like, and then it was just my own curiosity of how people worked and just listening to people. And then people just talk to you and tell you everything. And 
It's just the way you communicate with people. That's how people like you. And it's a lot of them, they take on that personality. Oh, it's about me. I'm here to provide a service for myself to get myself on. But they understand, like, the business, of course, the music business is majority business. (laughs) And a lot of them don't understand the business factors, the likability factor. And it's like, you're not really don't have good communicative skills and you're not really likable because you're not interested in what the artist needs or what the crowd wants. You just want to make a buck, basically. So, And I feel like when your intention is just to make money, then you're always going to be lost trying to figure out where you're going to go because if you're not focused, you know, because if you're likable, you're always going to have work. That's what I feel. I feel like if you're likable, you're always going to have work. Cause there's no reason why you haven't worked for, if you were a pay for hire musician to where you haven't been moving up unless, you know, that's just my theory. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a good theory. I think that I'll, I'll always choose somebody who can maintain pocket and have a great attitude than a person that's going to do a fill every two or three, four bars, you know, give me that person that, you know, I can, talk about anime with or talk about sports with or talk about just life and everything that these TikToks, whatever. Because the thing is, when you connect when you connect with people on the on that level, that's when you get chemistry. Because now you can like now your personality can show. And now certain musicians have a certain personality. And mm-hmm. it's really deeply spiritual if you think about it. Like just mm-hmm. if you think of like great organists like Corey and Henry and stuff, there's mm-hmm. certain there's a certain personality he plays with. And I'm like, there's musicians that can run just like him, but because of the personality, it's his own unique style. He's doing a lot of complex things, but it's his personality. And then you think about the jazz, it's like Oscar Peterson. Like Oscar Peterson had a lot of personality in the way he played. Bill Evans, just, you know, his emo, it's all personality. It just feels like you're in the room with the person. And um, when it comes to money, though, um, being in the business, it is tough. It is tough. I, I I live by the Quincy Jones quote where he says that uh, anytime money is in the conversation, God leaves the room. And I think that's true. <laughs> and there's been times where I've been uncomfortable asking for money. And there's been times where I've had to like follow somebody up, you know, a bunch of times for money. You know what I mean? So mm. even if you have a higher class contract, once the money gets involved, at that point, just me dealing with PTSD, it's just like, it's only a matter of time for it falls apart. And you better make sure that you get what you ask for in, in you know in the beginning. Don't try to get on the back end because it's a fight that almost never ends, honestly, in a lot of cases. So yeah. Oh my it's crazy. god. You just gave me a flash PT I don't know what they call it, P- trauma in <laughs> a trauma <laughs> story of it was mostly working R and B gigs, you know, working at yep. certain shows. And it's the R&B promoters. Like, I don't be trying to shit on mm. them, but it's like back in the... I mean, it's way better now, but back in the day, oh, you definitely had to look for a promoter because when they... Because our deal was, I want majority of the door, especially if I was okay. the one bringing because I had a gig to where... I mean, I would post it. I mean, I would do the night, three nights a week. I had my own show three nights a week. And all I wanted was the door and maybe about 30% of the drinks. Because I knew if we sold out the tickets, then of course they're going to be drinking. Because, you know, because we playing live music. And I bring the guests. I would bring the singers and all that shit. And then they, every time, it was like, had to wait for the uh, the promoter talking about, oh, 
he got to wait till the morning. No, he talking about it's going to take him to one o'clock to count the money. I'm like, well, you want me to count 20s or the 10s? Right. Count. <laughs> right, like, yeah, right. But yeah, it's just like those gigs. It was like once I did that, because I, I did that for like five years and I made that club so much money. But it was like, I, I have to progress past this. Like it gave me that footing to be a band leader. But mm -hmm. I was like, I can't keep on these shows. You know, you got to move up to music director and, you know, trying to get get on at on theaters and stuff like that. Like, you know, I was I did theater and arena tour work. <clears throat> but as a backing musician, or I mean, touring musician, not as a music director. And that's where, I, once I set the focus on that, and then, you know, I think it's maybe been two times to where I had a shitty gigs. One was, uh, well, it was just one. The guy was from London. I, if I knew the guy's name, I would blast him on this podcast because it was, <laughs> dude was a dude was a dickhead. But he, he was... Uh, I mean, his his work was okay. I should have known it was a bullshit gig because uh, I didn't really care for the music. And whenever I got the offer, I was like, eh. But I was like, it was a chance to go to London and, you know, yeah. I mean, go to the UK and go to Paris and all that stuff. And I was like, oh, I could do that. Dude, the man, his manager, I promise you, every, we did four rehearsals. The first three rehearsals, the manager was talking to us. We couldn't talk to him. He didn't want us talking to him and he didn't want us looking at him. His manager would come up to us like, yeah, he'd be coming in with a quiet voice. Yeah, he, he doesn't want y'all to do that. He just wants y'all to just, and then he would come in not knowing his material. It's his work and he doesn't know it. And then mm. we can't even get past three songs without him stopping it, trying to change the key of the song. And it's like, what are we doing? And then every time he kept trying to nitpick stuff, and I was just at, I, when I get the bullshit meter, it's like right here. I was already over the shit. And in the fourth rehearsal, I was like, if he does something else in this rehearsal that pisses me off, I'm just going to quit. This motherfucker had said nothing to us for three rehearsals. The guess, guess what the first thing he said to us when we were getting ready to start? Guess what he said? Bloody white guys. E flat. That's what he said to us. He clapped uh -huh. at us and said E flat to put us in the key of the song okay that's why i was like oh it's time to go <laughs> i was <laughs> like oh you must meet i was like this I, I guess god was trying to make it as late as possible because i probably would have put up with the bullshit just for the gig but i felt like god made that like the big ass warning sign of don't take gigs that you don't like the artist from that moment forward it was like if i don't like your material or you i'm not doing it but that mother when he did that shit oh i was over it i was like he must want me to throw some at him because I was I was this close to <laughs> popping off on him. But yeah, yeah. But and and I guess I'm fortunate in my situation because I've never been a gigging musician. I don't, I don't consider myself a gigging musician. So okay. the way I'll explain it is I come outside when I need to and I go home. So even in my heyday, you know, doing like industry stuff, I was never like I never had a weekly gig ever in my life, ever. Oh, and when I so I'm like this, I'm like the special occasion keyboard. So it's like, mm -hmm. if I want to put the show together and do a concert, then people will come out. Always, I've always right. kind of my own drum, and because growing up in Tucson, like there was nobody else doing it, so you had to know how, you had to kind of be a manager, a promoter. You had to be all of it mm -hmm. in one. 
And that's yeah. kind of how I grew up. And that's kind of how I carry myself to this day is that you can pull from this facet and this facet and this facet and make it part of your brand. And now you put on a gig or a showcase at like a theater or, you know, a bar or whatever. And there's a different, there's a different energy there. It's a, oh snap, this is off the beaten path. So I've always considered myself mm -hmm. an off the beaten path musician. And um, I've been telling people for a while that I retired and I, I mean it because it's like, I don't look for gigs. I don't audition for gigs. I auditioned a couple of mm -hmm. times. I won't do that going forward because I have so much music on the internet. It's like you can look and see. Mm -hmm. I got chops, um, but um, exactly. But yeah, so you know, just having that coming from that ecosystem of just having to beat everything, being the person talks to the promoters, do the deal with the bar, conduct the rehearsals, pay for the rehearsal space, get everybody for sound check, talk to the sound engineer, do all of that. Mm -hmm. I think those are experiences that being a toy musician typically doesn't give you. Because as a touring musician, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I've been on a couple of mini tours, but nothing country statewide or anything like that. But basically, you're there to do your job, intentionally just making sure you're on the music and stuff. You know the music to the T, and maybe you have to check, do sound check, and that's about it. Like you're not really negotiating your own. Like you probably fire some agency or your friend hooked you up or whatever and everything of that sort. So, so like it's just two different mindsets. But it's all bullshit. It's bullshit on both sides. It's not better one way or the other. And I think that, fortunate for me, I've been lucky to been on the, you know, come outside for special occasions, keyboardist, and still have a reputation of being a, a, a key. I'm not gonna say good, but just a keyboardist, you know, in my circles. You know, I think that that mindset has really helped me become who I am today. Yeah, that that's. I, I definitely relate to that, but on the opposite spectrum, because I'm the same way with doing studio work. Like, I only do that shit on, like, there got to be a reason for me to do it. Like, I'm not like, oh, I'm, I got to be in the studio. Because, again, I started out doing it, but I didn't really, to me, it was too easy. It was like, for me, mm -hmm. learning how to work on the road, that shit. Now, if you know how to yeah. work the road, that's yeah. where the real fucking musicianship of who you are and your skills, like how to communicate with people, with with the artists, with the not even just the artists, but the sound tech crew. Like people don't understand. Like I didn't realize that to a music director, how much went into putting a show together. Yeah. Like I, I'm at the point now where I collaborate with creative director. That shit is fun because it's like their job is important too. With like the lights, like what I'm doing, whatever I arrange, just being a part of that. And it's like mm -hmm. okay four bars i want you to do the lights like this because the piano is gonna be like bah, 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 and i want the lights to do this it's like doing little shit like that and then making sure everybody's mics are good everybody's in ears everybody's cool like you said during sound check but doing yeah. studio work it's like i think just that just being in church because I, I don't know about you but I grew up with old school cats where like James Brown style where you gotta like we we learn music in rehearsal on cassette tape so it was like yeah yep. you gotta figure this song out like and he might rewind it back a couple of times but mm -hmm. by the time the song ends you better have figured it out because he's yep. gonna rewind it maybe two or three times to learn his part he don't give a shit if you know your part he just want to know his part and so if you don't get it by then I don't know what's going to happen, but you know, you just better. I never figured that out. I was, just, it was just, I just made sure I had my part, but learning that, that skill, just getting it done 
in the studio, I would get done in like one or two takes. There you go. Because I would practice it before. And then I learned like, you know, like doing contracts. It's like, you know, the studio time, they add that shit in there, you know, the recording contract or whatever. So I was like, okay, if I do this in one take, then I'm not really, we're not really spending a lot of money. You're not really spending a lot of money if I can get this done quicker. So, but yeah, right. it was just, to me, doing studio work is easy. It's just, I love studio. I, 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 it's just working with producers that challenge you. And whenever I got my publishing deal back in 08, 07, 08, it was when everything was phasing out with <laughs> mm. with uh, studio musicians, producers. If you knew how to play an instrument, they, they wanted somebody that could just make out, crank out a hit record. Like they wasn't doing yeah. ballads. They wasn't. They didn't care if you knew about that because uh, what was it? I was under Sony BMG. That mm. deal was shitty as hell because <laughs> it was like they took all the master because they put it under Sony Music Entertainment. And mm-hmm. uh, they basically mm-hmm. kept all every all, every artist's uh, masters. They they kept that with the deal with Sony, and I thought that was crazy because I think it was like Jive, J Records, Arista was all under that umbrella, and so mm-hmm. I think everybody that worked under Sony BMG pretty much lost their job. So it was crazy. Yeah, that was a crazy time. My last, uh, so I, <laughs> I, first of all, I love the studio. Studio is my favorite place in, on the next to yeah, nature. Yeah, I love it too. It's just it's yeah, like the nature yeah. and studio. Those are like yeah. my two things. It's like I treat it like a sanctuary, and I always treat it like a, a privilege, like a privilege to like right. be away from the world for four to eight hours and just be in one place. And all, the only focus is the primary focus is just music and in your creative, creative juices really out. And um, mm. I've always been a yeah. musician that you know. I, I was brought up in the Nashville system. So my first real studio experience was in Nashville. And like, and you, you definitely relate to like the, the session musician, like King in Nashville. And um, oh, yeah, yeah. the majority of musicians in Nashville are, are session musicians and they're like, but they're, they're amazing skill wise. And um, yeah. so mm-hmm. I, I went, we went to a, so I was working on an art, like a pop R&B fusion band. So we got to uh, we got to Nashville. It was uh, Interscope Records, and uh, the situation was, you know, I had these R&B cats that are all more like five and groove and everything. We kind of have great sound, and everything, and now we're in Nashville. Now Nashville's like everything has to be on target. Everything has to be on beat. Everything has to be on time. The pictures off. Like this engineer was picking us apart just in terms of how inferior our sound was. Like how you know we this was out of tune and stuff and everything, and us being fresh, we didn't know. We were just like excited just to be in Nashville, you know, you know, potentially cracking out a record, mm-hmm. and we we ended up doing it. Um, but I say that to say is like, but even in that time in the studio, the studio I was at, um, the Beatles used to record there. Um, it's, it's called Blackbird Studios. Uh, Martina McBride, I think, owns it. Uh, yeah, she owns it. So it's a really well known studio and just seeing like all the kind of just the equipment and stuff and like the Beatles, the Les Paul that Paul McCartney played and you go to like mm. different areas and stuff. And like celebrities are there. Like the week before we got there, Kenny Chesney and T-Pain were there and stuff in the same room we were in. So it was just really cool just being around that kind of energy and just, you could feel just like, it's like, the, it's like the craziest rush I've ever had in my life. Like not, you know, it feels like a drug just being, yeah, in that kind of in that energy so when you're in the studio it's a magical experience and i can i can i can recall every single detail of that particular time that was 11 years ago 
Yeah, and I agree with that 100%. My, I think when I started out, it was because I was by myself doing it. And I think when I'm like with other people where we're creating together, that's I feel the exact same way. Because whenever I did it, they just gave me songs to fill. Like, just fill the space in the song. And it's just me yeah. and the producer. I'm like, is that good? And he's not giving me like, oh, yeah, that's fantastic. Or he's not giving me the energy to where it just feels like work. So I didn't. Yeah. I didn't really start appreciating it until I got older where I could get a part of an ensemble if we're playing together or it's just we're creating ideas to write songs. Like the project mm-hmm. I was a part of last year with Mr. Winston that's a part of Burning Spear. That was a fantastic experience just doing right. that. And it, it, it was just the love of it. I, I definitely feel the same way. It's like, you want to keep doing it. I was like, we go and do another one. Where we go? <laughs> what's, what's another project you want me to do? So, it's, yeah. but yeah, I definitely relate to that. In Nashville, I just went there, what was it, twice last year when we were on tour, and then I went to a show, somebody's concert. It, I was like, God damn, there's a lot of studios, because I was thinking about going in there. Yeah. I was like, God damn, there's a lot of studios in Nashville. Because I hadn't, because yeah. you know, like when you're on tour, if you're just driving through, you don't, you go to the spot, and then you go That's back it. to wherever you're going. You don't have time to, but I had time before the concert, because it started at seven. I was like, let me just explore Nashville. I was like, damn, they got a lot of music musicians here. I was like, but, but yeah, it's just they. I think if you're a part of musical cities like that in New York and L.A., where there's a lot of, especially New York, New York musicians, I feel like they just live and breathe music. It's a lot yeah. better than L.A. scene because they're a lot. I feel like so? New York musicians are more dedicated. I think I think it's just a more dedication to the art than L.A. L.A. is cool too, but I think it's more of like more clicked up. Even on New York, it's yeah. up too, but it's more of like, we have a goal to create music together. LA, I feel like they bullshit around a lot. So, to that, so we were talking about studios, right? So, you know, I love LA. LA is my favorite city yeah. in the entire, the entire mm-hmm. US. I got and I love New York yeah. too. And LA, so like coming from Nashville, that regimented, you know, session musician culture, it wrecked our project so you know we were we were able to get a hit out of it and everything the stuff still sounds good um so shout out to alexa because she's an artist i worked with on that so after I, I basically failed at that project and you know moved to louisiana learned about zydeco learned about you know that culture came back to arizona i was like all right i want to do this music thing the right way i need to be in la i just was fixated on la so i moved to phoenix about 10 11 years ago and instantly started going to LA. And LA studios are very different. It's not about mm-hmm. getting the work done. It's about the vibe. Mm-hmm. It's just about the vibe. And what I found out is that that studio vibe in LA is a, is a lot better for me. It's a lot better for creativity and just mm-hmm. ideas going and everything of that sort. It's really that like people could come like, you don't have to be a musician to be in the studio in LA. In Nashville, nah, there's no entourage here. We are working. I'm sure it's like that in New York too, where it's like, nah, mm-hmm. we work, oh, yeah, we trying sure. to get yeah, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Word up, son, mm-hmm. you know, all that type of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so LA is not like that. LA is like yeah. we have we have this we have this room for eight hours. Okay, roll something up. All right. And look at this, man. Oh. Oh, hey, look at this. You hear about this on Twitter? Oh wow, that's mm-hmm. bad. Smoke again. All right, cool. All right. Hey man, what's that song? Oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. Make a beat. It could be three hours and you're like, okay, nothing's been recorded yet. But then you're like, okay, hour four, magic happens. And now that, you know, hey, all right, get into, all right, now you're building the song. Now you're building the record. 
Now everybody's vibing everything. And that energy is only in LA. It's only in yeah, LA. Sure. And that's why LA yeah. is the way it is. It's that only that energy is there. There's no energy like that anywhere else in the recording industry that I've been a part of. I've seen maybe Atlanta, but I never worked in Atlanta. I haven't really, but, yeah, I haven't worked in yeah, Atlanta in the studio. Want to work so in Atlanta? It may, it may be that, but no, LA, yeah. you definitely right. But that changed over time. I think with so many and so many, um, I don't want to say musicians, but I guess just producer, just any creative in a studio, it started to change over time because it was like producers from like like the baby face type of like a tim and bob type of producer like mm -hmm. they i mean they would play around stuff but it was like we gotta get this done i think because uh it was studio the the recording uh labels budget so i think that's mm -hmm. why it was more of a crunch of it it wasn't i don't think any i think any indie project that i've ever been a part of it was definitely that that vibe but if it was like theory. actual work, then yeah, it was like, you got to get this shit done before the day over with. <laughs> yeah, I have a theory about that. So I obviously have a theory that as soon as a producer turns himself into a businessman, no longer a good producer. Ooh, that may be it. Cause that motherfucker, got jipped. <laughs> they didn't send whatever Sony did that. Deal. They did that deal with Sony. He was definitely not one of the ones that got, got on. So but yeah, it's just cool though, like, but yeah. Yeah, like if you think about, and I'm not, it's not taking shots, but like you think about producers now, they're a brand. Like Pharrell's a brand. Mm -hmm. Tim is a brand. Mm -hmm. Swiss Beast is a brand. Nice Wonder's, a, you know, he's a brand. They're brands. There's a certain sound that you expect from this producer, but then you get into the like the verse and stuff and Louis Vuittons, and now your time is elsewhere and stuff, and you're not really in that creative ecosystem all the time like you're used to. So when you look at producers like Alchemist and No ID, and Bings and like Kenny Beats, like people who just stay to the ground, and no matter what they're doing, they're they're keeping the music first and everything that they do. Like even without, like especially, I mean, you hear Griselda records now. Alchemist, I think did an album with Let's Like Done with I think about like earlier this year. Sounds fresh, and Alchemist has been doing records since the nineties. But because mm. he's put music first, that's his brand, and he's able to stay relevant with the new sound and find out what a new popping artists are at and they can put themselves in positions to work with those artists yeah i'll only fight back on that is because i think it's just the prioritization it's like with that for real type i get completely like with la redid how he completely shifted like if you uh i don't know if you read his book but yeah, no gun hole on being a, a yeah. yeah it was crazy i thought it was crazy yeah. that he never played any of his songs live on the drum. I yeah, the he said. The, world. I was, was the way crazy. he described women in that in that book was creepy, dude. That was creepy. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Yo, yo, see, like, like slave talk. It was weird. It... <laughs> see, you know, hot blonde, a whole, nice feel. Another way. <laughs> yeah, like yo, Elliot, I forgot all about that. Too. Like, you said not surprised. that. Right, know why he got canceled, but no, it was just he went from that was his priority being a musician, and then label, and then it was like, oh, I'm just gonna focus on this being the business guy. So yeah. that ended up faltering. I think with the Arista deal, I think that's when it was like completely like when he's at Epic Records, he did a lot of great stuff there. He was, I think he was Future DJ um, Khaled, yeah, yeah. Oh shit, DJ Khaled. Now see, yeah, I still don't know Khaled. what he does. What the he hell doesn't is he do doing anything. Studio? I'm on the record. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't do anything. He's not a producer. It's That's just, what I, I'm like. I, he's yeah, not a producer. It's like, what 
what does he do in a studio besides he, yell on the record? He doesn't elevate the That's talent what, that he gets. If you're a great producer, you elevate the, the talent. I, you don't, the talent is a talent, but you right. have all these A these A level hitters, and it was. He got Jay Z and this person, and that person, all on one record. It is a good producer. A good producer elevates right. elevates the, the idea, the execution, mm-hmm. the idea. He doesn't play an instrument. Doesn't, do that. doesn't play an instrument. He always beats up from those producers and other younger producers. Just appreciate your sound. That's it. Not a producer. I'm on the record. That right. I'll definitely say that publicly because I try not to like, you know, throw shade or whatever at producer. But I just honestly never know what he does. And the record he did with Mary J last year, I'm like, this is a good record, but him screaming on it. It's like, can I get a version without him on it? That would be yeah. great. But then I don't know what he contributes to where, like, like I get producers, some of them be like, okay, I want you to sing it like this. It's some producer yeah. that they can direct you know, like what Puff does, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Like he does it. He yeah. may not know. Yeah, but he can like arrange it to where it's like, I want you to do this on the chorus. I want you to yeah. do it like, like of course. But I don't know. I need him just a little mini docu series of what he actually does in the studio. So I would love I to see it. Find, yeah, because I don't know what the hell he does or what what he contributes to make the song great. Yeah. Because from and what I, I hear, he he be faking like he pro- programming. St- like it was one he didn't even have the damn thing hooked up. Yeah, and then NPC never turns on. Talking about this, yeah, it like, wouldn't even turn, turn on. on. Like, right? Yeah. I just think he's a fraud, it's like, and it's okay that yeah. he's a fraud. Just he's a, I consider him a mascot. He's a he's a I consider him a mascot. He's a mascot for hip hop. <laughs> he's a mascot. Yeah, he's definitely that. Somebody had yeah. the nerve to call him Quincy Jones of hip hop. Bad joke like, that. Are you fucking? Are you serious? Yeah, I'm like, bro, like Quincy Jones. Sinatra, like that's it. Like you stop, you just stop there. You don't have to get the MJ. She said Sinatra, it, and that's it. So it's, it's no. just like it's can't like for me, it's like calling him. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's what makes you a drum probably. But I would love yeah. to see it. I want to see a DJ Khaled documentary. I want to see it <laughs> behind the I scenes do documentary. I want to see it. Right, I, I do too. And then I, I haven't heard. I, I heard he was popular in Atlanta scene with DJing, but I don't know how that would coincide with him being a producer or how that got him on as a producer. Because I think the was it Rick Ross was his first, or was it uh, Fat Joe? I can't remember. But. I think it's Rick Ross. And I love Ross. Um, yeah. Maybe DJ Khaled is really fun to be around. That, maybe that's what it is. Personality, musician personality. There you go. I think that positivity should, but I feel like half that shit is. is I don't really believe he's going to overcompensate. He's going to overcompensate. He's going to overcompensate because he's DJ Khaled. He's going to overcompensate. He's going to pay for everybody's meals. He's going to pay for all the drinks, everything. Be the best, you know, everything. Get the little TikTok going, and he's going to lead the Robert going to lead the party, and he's going to be stuck cleaning the mess. And he's cool with that, right? Another one, you know. That's that's another one. Another one, right? (laughs) He got a. Oh, God bless him. I hope I hope everything go right with whatever he got going on. I just I just I just don't know. I didn't realize there was so many. Maybe it's the the non-black crowd that loves DJ Khaled because I don't get the 
He crossed over. I don't over. get the appeal. He crossed over. Oh, he crossed like, over. Yeah, I would play. Was, I would pay money to see that live. Like yeah. even with Beyonce, I know he opened for her. I just don't understand the appeal of why that would want to see him just yelling and screaming all on stage. That just yeah, and that, that's my date. He's a he's a mascot. I think, and I I don't mean that in a derogatory term. It's just that right. He is the casual hip hop fan or the non hip hop fans. When they think of him, they associate with him with hip hop. And I think because he built his brand on TikTok, he got a- access to a younger audience and a more, you know, white liberal audience and a white audience where they're like, oh, why is this, you know, Arabian dude, big belly dude out here getting lost, you know, getting lost <laughs> in, in the water <laughs> and stuff, trying to ask for help and stuff and recording live on TikTok. Like that was a lot of his introduction. So for them, DJ Cal is a character. I doubt yeah. people. I don't think. Yeah, I think people yeah. don't take him seriously. Now you say that because yeah, just, musically for me it's just know. yeah, he's just fun. He's he's a good yeah. vibe. He's probably just fun. I guess yeah. I guess you just take it as the positive yeah. vibration thing he's on. I guess you can buy into that, but I would yeah. put him in like, oh, these are my top favorite producers because I don't know what what his style is except name for five the DJ Khaled songs. Name five. Right. I can't name, but that one. We the best. With the That's not a song. song. Is it a song? It's probably a song. I don't. Shit, I don't know. Uh, what was the one with T Pain? The I, all I do is win. That's about the only. All this went there. There's one. What but else? I can't think. It's a Rick Ross song, but I can't think of the name of it. Wild thoughts, Rihanna. Did he do that one? No, 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 no. That's like. Movie. See there? I don't even know. I'm I'm done after that. I can't name your like name like name your five favorite DJ Khaled songs. That's why I, ask anybody oh, that they're like, oh, you're right, you're right, favorite. you're right. I'm like, yeah, I know I'm right. It's okay. I don't, I don't got him on my playlist at all. Now I think about it. I don't either. And never will. And he's worked with a good majority of my favorite artists, and I don't have him on there. That's crazy. and I listen to that stuff. I always give him a listen. I'm like, all right, how's he gonna f this? How's he gonna fuck this up? How's he gonna do this? All right, give it a listen. Okay, he's got her, Demi Marley, freaking Common. Robert Glasper, okay, how is he gonna mess this up? He messes it up, and you're like, that was a waste of a feature. Oh, okay, right. here you got, you got Rick Ross, you got Jay Z, he's got Fabulous, and he's got Drake. What are they gonna do? Mess it up. Mess it up. And you be trying to like it too. I don't think he has a sense of. I mean, I don't want to turn this into the DJ Khaled. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, the sorry, haters sorry, club. Sorry. No, but sorry. it's just like you got me thinking now. It's like I think because it lacks rhythm. Like I don't think he had. I don't think like I think that that lack it because it's like all those producers that had classic records. They had a sense of like soul to it. And when he uses soul samples, it don't sound. It like he takes all the soul out of it. Yeah, that's what I yeah. hate about his music. It, it's like it has a more of a pop feel than hip hop, and I ain't trying to be a hip hop purist, but I don't I usually am. like like <laughs> the Sorry, dealers. No, you're Always. good. The dealers, you know, when they use those yes. those sample, it has soul to it. Like the Pete Rocks, you know, those are my favorite producers. DJ Quick, you know, that was a soul like soulful hip hop. You know, Eric Sermon, like that's my top Eric favorite. Sermon, yeah producer it's like it has a soul to it he don't have that's what the problem is i think it, it's just too poppy and i'm glad we're talking about this because um i have a 17 year old and a 13 year old uh it's me 13 and wednesday and we talk about soul like they're, they're they're growing up in this gen z kind of music age where everything's on the internet and stuff so they're able to absorb a lot of different things so they both have excellent taste in music 
Okay, my son, my 13-year-old son's favorite rapper is MF Doom. Freaking MF Doom is his favorite rapper. And it's because that soul of Jay Dilla and Mad Lib and all the people that he worked with around the Soquarians and stuff, that sound resonates with my kids way more than a DJ Khaled song. They're not going to remember DJ Khaled songs five years from now, ten years from now. Yeah. But my sons will always remember, you know, all caps by MF Doom and hearing that mm-hmm. intro. They know what everything's on. So um, in my studio, I actually have a MF Doom mask right here. But my son, nice. he wanted to be here for Halloween. Like that's the top. Now that's soul. When you can touch a young yeah. person like that, and you, you're sure. gone. Like like that's my generation. I grew up on Doom. That's my mm-hmm. heart. But that's his favorite right. rapper. Crazy. So. Yeah, my son. My son's favorite rapper is Pete Rock. Oh, there He's you go. A, I mean, uh, yeah. uh, CL Smooth. I meant Smooth. CL Smooth. There Rock, you go. Yeah, he, that's his favorite, and it's because you know that's what I would play for him is that, and he's you know, you know he's all into the the hip hop of that those artists that you know that made us like Uncle Luke's the reason why we got the parental <laughs> was it uh, the parental explicitory content uh, sticker yep. on stuff, cause, but people yep. act like oh it was different back then. What the hell is different about? A whole ass cheeks and him sitting on it like this. Like, how is that? How is that uh, more cultured and sophisticated than opulence? <laughs> like, come on, let's yeah. stop acting like. Like, I can take the Sukiyanas when we had Adina Howard was talking about it. When her album didn't come out, she was talking about eating booty on her sophomore album. So, yeah. I mean, it ain't. You yeah, know, it's it, just it's that been we. A thing. We're the first generation where we can't use the back in my day we had better music than you guys. No, a lot of our stuff was ratchet and stupid. Yeah. Like, really stupid. Like, every 90s R&B song, read the lyrics to those songs nowadays. They're like, what were we on? A lot of banging right. and a lot of male centering. Like, a woman was... If a woman yeah. didn't sing about a man, you didn't hear that woman in R&B. <laughs> right. Think about that. Think about R&B. Think about R&B. Like- yeah. I was about to do. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I used to get on my singing because I'm like, I'll be working, working on new music and stuff. And I'll be listening to the lyrics. And I'm like, all right, who's this about? And they're like, what's about him? I'm like, see? I'm like, all right. Just decenter us, right. guys. But think about, can you think of an RB singer that doesn't sing about dudes? Right. Email. I can't, Name one. I can't think of one. Especially from the 80s and 90s. What about, uh, what's her name that plays the bass? Uh, Esperanza Spalding? No, no, no. no I'm talking about from the 90s. I could slap myself for not knowing. Oh, Chase Chase Chapman? Yeah, her yeah. too. But, um. Uh, was it Michelle? Uh, how do you pronounce her last <laughs> name? The girl of cello? Michelle? Michelle? No, Michelle. She's bald. She plays um, the bass. She does. Yeah. She covers a lot of songs. Hold on. Let me pull it. I'll pull it up on my phone so you can see who I'm talking about. It's Michelle. Oh, so the listening audience, I'm showing him a picture. I don't know if you can see. Uh, she looks... I don't know if you. Oh, let me get one of her face. Hold on. They got actually Miss Chalet as oh, one of her. Oh, Michelle, Nindigo, whatever. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Michelle Nenigo. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, she's she's amazing. I know it's kind of yeah, great basis. Yeah, she's the LGBTQ. That she's a pioneer. Like yeah, she yeah. did some stuff at Berkeley. I don't know. Uh, Most of her songs went well. I guess because she is part of LGBT. That's probably what she's a yeah, lesbian. That's yeah. why you not Milston <laughs> song. She's a killer musician. Killer musician. Oh yeah, for sure. Oh my yeah. god. New yeah. York gets so spoiled. They had a they had a Amp Fiddler and Dilla tribute uh, See? with Ray Angry uh, from the Roots. My brother from the Roots, Ray Angry, and uh, she. They, I think artists like her pop in. Um, I mean, they'll do like go to the Blue Note with Robert Glasper, and he'll yeah. have his uh, residency at the Blue Note, and she'll pop in with fucking Pino Palladino. I was like, what the fuck? Why do I, yeah. why do y'all get all this? And then. I was like, I feel like New York appreciates that level of like all star musicianship. They get spoiled with all those great ass musicians. And it's like, I'm all the way across down Cali or down Texas. So, one thing I tell <laughs> people wait about once New a York, year to get that kind of shit. Yeah, the one thing I tell people about New York, I'm like, New York is the best city because that's normal. When you just name, that's normal. Yeah. That, you go to Blue every Tuesday shit. night to see Robert Plasper. And Fuck you're gonna no. get a seat, and you're gonna have the best time yes. of your life. And you can do it again in one more week, and right, that, you exactly. can't get that I'm anywhere so else jealous. in the country. Yeah, you can't get that yeah. anywhere else in the country. I where you'll see Robert Glassberg, you'll see Dave Chappelle, then you'll see Mel's death, then you'll see Tyler Carly, then you'll see freaking you know a politician. You'll see Kamala Harris. Like you'll see mm-hmm. just a bunch of Jill Scott. Then you see Questlove. Then you see Thundercat. You know, like mm-hmm. these, all these people are just like friends. And that energy there is unrivaled, and you, that doesn't happen anywhere else. I don't care. LA's okay, but yeah, that, yeah. New York is so so. Yeah, a normal day in New York feels like the best day of your life. That's the only thing that would I would if I ever decided to move to New York because I wouldn't put it past if I got a good like little check or whatever if they wanted me to do like you know some studio work there and it paid good or something something related to where I could make a decent living. But you right. damn near got to make a hundred thousand a year just to have a decent apartment because I ain't staying in no damn shoebox with splinter. That ain't happening. Yeah. That's what turned yeah. me off from it. Is that I ain't paying that much money. I'm like shit. You can live like you Beyonce in Oklahoma. Shit. Yeah, <laughs> there yeah. in Texas, you get you a get you a, a four bedroom and you still got you still got a livable income. Yeah, <laughs> you can't do that, that in New York. New York is a good city. New York's a good city to be broken. And I think it's because I think yeah. the majority of people there are broke. Like, and I don't mean that as like just yeah. no shade or anything. It's just right. Manhattan's, you know, is, there's rich people. But I think right. you could be broke in New York and still have a good time. You had a time yeah. of your life being broke, the brokest you'll ever be. And I think mm-hmm. for your 20s, I think New York is great for that. But in your 30s, it's like, all right, I'm tired of all walking everywhere. I'm tired of all this traffic tired of you know just it's so fast everything is so fast you know i want to i want i want to slow down not even upstate whatever whatever so new york i think also burns people out really fast too mm-hmm. so i think yeah i always told myself i would spend one calendar year in new york before i die and i, I still want to do that just so i can really absorb that energy but the older i get I'm, the more i'm like you know what? i like just being out on my porch you know just <laughs> Right. And just reading. I'd rather do that and be at complete peace than trying to chase and right. trying to be here, be there. I'm cool. I'm chill. I'm zen now. 
This is Zen Lee. Zen, Zen Lee. You mm-hmm. transitioned it perfectly. With your new project you got going on, which I had pleasure to listen to. Oh my God, I can't wait till people hear this. It's so fucking dope. Like, like I told you, I don't even, cause I, of course, you know, journalism, is, I do that on, I'm a college dropout, do my college dropout journalism. <laughs> but when I when I when I heard the album, it's like I, I didn't have the right words to describe it. But uh, of course, it's an ascension about uh, this project in particular. In terms of like, do you plan on like wanting a live experience for them to experience it that way, or you just want to put it out there? So in terms, I know you have it going to have it through Bandcamp, but in terms of, uh, I say the monetary long-term like in terms of touring off of it or do you plan on doing that or what, what's the experience you want the audience to take from it uh, uh def- definitely definitely a live experience and i was really inspired by robert glasper because there's so many videos of just his live shows and it, it no matter what the night is it just seems like it's a really fun experience and so i was really paying attention to how he did his sets like he did he md he did him and Derek Hodge, his bass player how they did their sets, how they went through a show. Like, okay, do they spend 10 minutes on one song or do they spend four minutes? Or Like, how do they construct their shows? So I took that mindset and I was like, all right, cool. I got that mindset. How can I put down a record that embraces all my music personalities? That word again, personalities. But I was like, all right, I can do, so on my rec, on my album, it's called um, Amateur Genius Volume 1. Um, it's on Bandcap. But it's not out on streaming yet. It probably will be soon. Um, so I have like three jazz covers. I did a Herbie Hancock cover called Maiden Butterfly, which is the Maiden Voyage and the Butterfly, all in one song, but it's chopped and screwed. Mm-hmm. I was like, nice. this shit will go off live. If I was to do this live with the musicians I know, it will be mm-hmm. fire. So when I was making my selection, I only chose songs that I felt like would translate well live. Nothing on that album is like a dud. It's things you can p- hear live in, in like a nice setting. And it, it sounds unique enough before thinking enough where it's like, okay, it's like D2 roads, it's lo-fi sounds, mm-hmm. it's chopping screw vocals. It's a bunch of different things that are hitting you. But in a live experience, I want people to experience that all at once because I feel like it's going to blow people's minds. Yeah, I, I said what whenever I heard it, that's the first thing I thought of. I was like, damn, this would be cool as hell to hear live because that's how I think. Like, because you know, as a producer and you know, as a musician, that's what we th- we think of versus like, how is this going to translate live? I know that's how I listen to music, and it's like yeah. you already envisioning what's going to sound like if you want to add certain elements, like a horn section, if you want to add this to certain parts, you know. And so I think these collection of songs, and that's why I think the beauty of putting together records, it takes a long time if you want mm-hmm. a solid project. Like, I, I think that's most of the creative process is maybe two years unless you just have it in you to where you can knock them out, which is, I think it's a rare occurrence when you have that. Uh, I think if you just had uh, uh, just a baby experiences to where you have stuff to write and produce it, and you get the right people to where it take like, oh, we knocked this out in one day or it took us a week to put this together, then I think it's that. But I think most projects, it takes like two years, especially if you want specific producers or musicians on the record. 
and y'all schedules may not align and so you may have to mm -hmm. wait to the end of the period of the uh, of the fall period or winter period to get them on record so but yeah this, yeah this right here what i heard so far i'm like i'm glad you said that i was hoping you said this would be a live experience you said something else i was gonna bring up another question you said something online and i'm trying to remember oh, God. the question you asked <laughs> it was just today so i'm trying to remember oh, this one i told you yeah it was you know what's so crazy is that i have a photographic memory and it's slowly fading away <laughs> as every interview because I, I had it in my head what it was and I can't remember. Oh, Nam. That's what it was because I just pulled it up. Yeah. You said, is Nam still worth going to? I was going to answer it, but I was like, let me wait until I talk to him on the podcast. <laughs> and tell him. Yes, it is. So you can hear me. All right. Yes, it absolutely is. I think Nam is for sure is like, like super the the Grammys for musicians. Like that's that's you. It's like a the camaraderie I've been, of it all. I've been like, twice. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But that's I've been, the experience I get from it. Is that, okay, I, and I, then, yeah. you know, who got me into it was Daniel. Because I used to be like, eh, this ain't for me, Daniel Jones. Because he was like, no, because you can <laughs> collaborate with people. And he's he was into gadgets. Rest on to my guy. I hate referencing him in past tense. It's so crazy. But he was into Damn. the gadgets and so he got me into the gadgets and buying stuff for you know like when you get your setup yeah. like you know to tour and they got like a bunch of they got so much new technology shit that ain't came out yet and you get exclusive listens to some of it and they got any taste of yours if you're a dj if you're a bass player they got any type of instrument or any type of uh software programming they have it know specific for that kind of musician so that's what i love about it because you get on to new products that haven't came out yet depending on which yeah uh, which brand it is and it may not be even be a, a well-known brand it may be an independent brand you might get on and then you might get endorsement deal and then you may make connections to where they may you know could sponsor your tour for you you may get one of them you know yeah you yeah know. i just yeah. feel like it's like a it's like a giant toy store for musicians <laughs> it is it's a giant it's a giant toy store and i've i've done it them is. i think i think i've done them two or three times and yeah. i think that i guess the, the appeal of them for me is the showcases i want to see yeah. what musicians are playing where and where can i find where where's the low-key stuff that the church stuff things that are often being passed because there are like a lot of cool sheds going on and everything of that sort, but I've never been a part of them. It's just they're hard to find. And then the people you want to see is always on some like, okay, you gotta be a member of this group and give a membership to this brand and give a pat a wristband, a certain wristband. Are you a buyer or are you just a guest? Like, so there's a lot of qualifiers to see a lot of cool people. So I was like, all right, it's cool. I mean, but I, I don't want to buy any other stuff. It's cool to look at, but. There's no practical use for me for oh, you don't the majority buy of stuff. Oh, there. I thought you was yeah, the ones that yeah. was into like buying some of the shit. Now, if you're not into that, then yeah, it probably ain't for you. I thought you was a. I ain't gonna say you was a real musician. I hate when musicians do that shit. <laughs> they be like, "Oh, you ain't a real musician." Like, shut the hell up. Like they they swear for them. Yeah. Like they had these things where it's like, "Oh, if you don't know music theory, or if you don't know uh, know how to play by ear, if you don't know how to read music, you're not a musician." Like quit with that nonsense i hate those music snobs it's like it's like it's already we get shitted on in the industry just in general it's like don't add on to the bullshit with you know making i have a saying inner turmoil that's not needed 
have a saying. I say good musicians follow the rules. Great musicians rewrite the rules. And what I mean by that is like good musicians can sight read. They can do a bunch of classical things. They can do things. They can sight read off. You know, they, they can do different things. You know, every scale. You know, every mm -hmm. pentatonic scale. You know, harmonic scale, mixolydian, all the jazz modes. Mm -hmm. You know, all of it. They can follow the rules very well. But the real great musicians rewrite the rules. And mm -hmm. you have a lot of musicians that can't read for crap. There's a lot of musicians that are famous and they can't read. Period. There's musicians that were deaf. There are musicians that are blind. There are musicians that have disabilities or musicians that are on drugs but because they have ideas they can rewrite the rules so you cannot be a great musician if you follow the rules of music right the great ones rewrite that, the rules yeah and that's pretty much every sentiment of music i, I don't think we if, if every artist or I mean musician followed the rules then we wouldn't have half of the ones that you know that we revere now, like the John Coltrane's, like the Thelonious Monks, because and even going back to Dizzy Gillespie, like they didn't think what he did was uh, was real. It, all the jazz artists back then, they didn't think it was real music, like which is yeah. you know a crazy concept when you think about it today. But bebop they didn't consider that real music, and it's I think yeah. it just keeps perpetuating itself, like every different change of era, because people don't like change. They want it to stay the same, which I think is just the track history of America. People don't like new. They want the same shit just repackaged. That's why you have to, you know, if you're an artist that likes adventuring out, you got to make it, you know, like even though, you know, Bruno Mars, I don't think that project he put out last was, you know, good R&B, but it's packaged enough to where it's digestible mm. to, you know, the person that likes, you know, the 90s type of hip-hop he hit that you know cliche style of that's what i call because if you're a real musician it's yeah. like this shit ain't hard to play it's like real poppy and you know whatever but you know it just <laughs> you have to guess, package it a certain way for somebody to digest it and it's like if you're doing like a robert glasper of course it's only going to be certain you know kind of music snobs that be like you know that's into dilla that's into you know certain jazz where you know that they'll it, they'll try to you know what's the word i want to use uh gatekeep it they gatekeep yep. like the robert glaspers and all that stuff they don't want it to go mainstream like they want it just enough you know for you to be popular but they don't want you too popular if that makes sense yeah it makes perfect sense and i think it's interesting you bring up those examples because like bruno mars to me is like mcdonald's everybody likes mcdonald's <laughs> But I'm not. Right. Gonna, I'm not trying to live off McDonald's. McDonald's is good every right. once in a while when you're like, no, I just want some nuggets. I just want some nuggets and sweet sour sauce, right? And some fries and a high C orange. Just one day, and then you eat it, you're like, I regret this, but I'm gonna be back soon. That's Bruno Mars to me. And I think Robert right. Glasper, think, he's yeah. yeah, he's more like a steakhouse. He's more like, oh, you know, I'm yeah. a Michelin chef review person. I, I have expectations. This steak better be cooked. Medium rare, it better be medium rare. All oh, the potatoes, yeah. like that's Robert Glasper. He's a steakhouse. Yeah, yeah, that was brilliant. I think I think with Bruno Mars, I think well, and not the last project. I only one with Silk Sonic because I actually like that one. Uh, yeah, even though that you know, but I think Anderson Pack. I think his element to it. Anderson Pack is on that wave with Robert because he's an actual real yep. musician. Even though Bruno Mars is yep. a musician too, he's a different kind of like where yeah. he had more of a hip hop influence, like the the 
the Andre 3000 type of production. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. That's real mm -hmm. deep. Like, he knows the real deep shit. I think Bruno on the surface, like, he likes that. Like, he'll go in the past, but he'll go to, like, some, like, uh, Frankie Lyman type shit. Like, you know, pop artists that, you know, yeah. kind of lean towards the white demographic. He does black music. Bruno Mars does black music that leans towards white people. Like what Motown did for black folks, it was for white people. So it technically isn't, you could kind of consider it black music, but I consider that pop black music for, I mean, black music that appeals to white people. Yeah, I think Bruno Mars is a singer that is a musician and Anson Pack is a musician that is also a singer. And and the reason and and they col they collaborated and they actually made a in my opinion a, a great music yeah. project. But yeah. but now tell my kids this. I'm like, all right, kids, think about the seventies, right? Think about the music you heard on the seventies. Think about the music you heard. That was normal. If I were to put mm -hmm. Sil Sonic in that same era, it would be just another song in that era. Would it be a classic? I don't know. It's too, there's a lot of records in the 70s that came out that you have never heard of or never listened to, and they're probably fire, but unless you know where to go find those records, you're never going to know. You had to be amazing in the same 70s to get on the radio. You had to be amazing. You had to have money. You had to have a manager. You had to have, you know, you had, you had to go through, you know, pay your dues and everything. Like, there was an ecosystem that spread it out real raw authentic music and in this era it's a lot harder to get that same process and um it's as a result things like so sonic those to me is really good it because because like i said why america is so starved for like a non-threatening multi-ethnic pop star Notice I said non-threatening because right, non if you look at people like Beyonce, even Beyonce, she threatens people. It's weird, mm -hmm. but she people are threatened by her because of her power, and it's, it, it 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 puts Beyonce in a whole other stratosphere where you can't utter her name. Something bad without the Bayhide coming after you. Like think about that, and Bruno Mars fits that mold to the T, right. and it's just so happy he has a great appreciation for our music he's always quick to give credit to our music and on top of all that he does his homework he does his homework he doesn't he does not do a disservice to anything that he does he does his homework so i'll give him props for that yeah and i think i think with the not this silk sonic i was more referring to the 24k magic one i mean okay yeah and I think the more I was irritated was that he won a Grammy for that album when Gumbo was on. That's why I was really he had he had he got on my bad side with that because I was I was okay with him winning in the pop category, but when you won Best R and B album for this shit and goddamn yeah. P J Morton made the greatest album of that year, get the hell yep. out of here. That's when I was like, oh no, when you start winning over actual R and B acts. Nah, that's when, but that was my only issue. I didn't mind him making that because I heard Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis had showed him some chords to play. And, you know, I think mm -hmm. Jimmy Jam had talked about that on Quest of Supreme of him borrowing some chords from him or something, showing him how to play certain chords or whatever. But, I mean, other than that, it was just him winning the Grammy. But I think Bruno Mars' stardom after that proved that 
R&B actually sells. Now, if you want actual black people selling, the R&B is still question mark. But I think that album actually proved, and a Silk Sonic joint, that R&B actually fucking sells. It's just... I don't understand. That's that's the crazy thing, because when I do corporate, because I love doing corporate gigs, because I get to see, it's majority, the crowd that, you know, you wouldn't think would like R&B music, that you wouldn't yep. like, but I play deep cuts, mm-hmm. and I play it from, and if I get a, a good sense of the audience, it's like, let me play this uh, Yarn Bro and Peoples. I play Don't Stop the Music. I play records like that. They're going crazy over it. So it's like the real yeah. black records. I'll it in there I, of course i'll play like some bruno mars and shit like that just because it's a, yeah. you know a corporate event but i'll sneak all that shit in there and they love it and it's like not you can't say that it doesn't sell you're not marketing towards you you're, you're not marketing the r&b the real black music you're not marketing to but it gets to a whole other conversation i ain't trying to get on no whole you go, uh, music you go. industry trip but yeah it's just i think it's just bullshit people using that excuse that r&b doesn't sell and then it's these conversations every three months on twitter talking about r&b oh, where's the good r&b it's like it's there if you fucking it's look everywhere we're like, <laughs> not writing these reviews for you to keep saying this shit i think consumers are lazy just like with this project they'll ask you like 20 times is it i promise you fans or people once you drop it they like is it available on spotify is it available on apple they're gonna ask you that soon as that shit drop they're gonna ask you it is like you made it clear it's on Bandcamp, but you're gonna have because people don't listen and they don't want they they want a handpick form to where it's on their phone and it's like you know it's so hard to navigate through these spaces when you can't just call it out and say hey let's stop being lazy and support these artists and actually you know what it buy is? the music what it is is we are all now we all function on the algorithm now we don't function mm-hmm. we all try to function within an algorithm there's a set ideas or set schedule that you have that your brain has that needs to have stimuli in order to get through the day and because we're so algorithm driven we're missing out on a whole different world of new ideas and new music and new music ideas because now the information is out there. The information is out there. If you want to find dope music, it's everywhere. There are all kinds of publications. And it, shout out to NPR on this because they got it right. The Tiny Desk mm-hmm. is like the yeah. one thing I think everybody can be like, oh, wow, my artist is going to be on there. Let's go ahead and immerse yourself back in, in, you know, get back into this nostalgia. And then from there, the Tiny Desk reintroduces people like Scarface and Juvenile and Trina mm-hmm. and a bunch of other people to Gen Z. And they're like, yeah, this is dope. Wow, cool. I'm going to go through the catalog and stuff. Now they have a new mm-hmm. fan base. Now they're going back on tour. Now they're doing shows and everything. So I think, you know, in situations like that, we have to be very careful because um, the more we kind of fall victim to this algorithm that we're living in this daily routine of needing to have things put in front of us like something put in front of you to get you through your day a tweet or a thought or focusing in or honing in on like a tiktok video and going out conspiracy window we have to withdraw from that kind of mentality in order to really appreciate all the great music that's out because it's out there i find it every single day uh, somebody new and tiktok algorithm i think is on crack because that shit gives me perfectly. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I never heard 1974? What? 
Oh, let me go through Spotify. Oh, let me go through Wikipedia. Oh, okay. Is he coming to my town? Bet I'm gonna see him. That's right. to me exactly. is the, it's the only benefit of having an algorithm work for you. Yeah, and I think it's mostly with the algorithm. I think like shows. I mean, the well, I say show like it's a like it's on TV with Tiny Desk with NPR. I think because it's it's they they make their audience participate with them and people yeah. like to feel needed and that's what's so crazy about the internet you got so many i think majority of the internet is people just want to be heard i mean the ones that follow shows like that or just they just want to be heard and if they feel like they're not a participant in your page whether if you're on twitter or instagram i notice if they don't feel participant in in what you're creating then they don't really buy into what you're doing in terms of the likability fact of you. So they want to know your personal life, like if you got kids, if you're married, and if you show your wife, if you show your kids, <laughs> they want to feel a part of your story. Those people that are, because I know a lot of them, I follow a bunch of them, you know, that's a part of their brand as well. Where, hey, yeah, I show them my kids, but also I got this product I'm selling and it usually works for them. And it just, mm -hmm. to me, I don't, I don't think, I just understand it. Like two days ago, my, one of my tweets went viral. Mind you, it only took me a second to think of the fucking, the, 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 it was, I just, it was a nerdy kid was like, name a famous dragon. And I put a video up of disco. It only took me, I just made sure I looked in the comments to make sure nobody else said it. And I saw like 50 comments and nobody saw said Cisco. I was like, well, let me just do that because that's the first thing I thought of. Because I was going to say Bruce Leroy, but somebody had already said it. And that's then niche, that's Cisco niche, came to mind. The yeah. shit went, it's like 300,000 impressions on it. And I'm that person, <laughs> bro, I get pissed off when I go viral. Because it's like these bullshit, because I go viral all the time with bullshit tweets. With me just throwing jokes. You know my Twitter and I'm just, yeah. you know, I don't do it yeah. that often, but just bullshit tweets that shit gets the most impressions but when i post my podcast when i post you know music which i don't mind that you it takes people longer to catch up to it but it's just this bullshit i just rather not go viral bullshit. <laughs> that's just my thing i just yeah. don't like it and it pisses me I, off I, and then i'm off the internet for another week <laughs> yeah my thing is like I don't mind going viral as long as i can capitalize off of it and oftentimes you can't capitalize on it because it's just like you said, there's a moment you're not really thinking about. It's a throwaway moment or a throwaway joke that happened that yeah. a lot of people at this specific time in the universe happen to pay attention to. It spreads. And then from there, so like, there's like, if I can capitalize off of it, I feel better about it. But in the times I've gone viral, I've never, well, no, I've never benefited from it. Yeah. Just and notoriety. That's it. That I, I don't want. I don't want notoriety. You if it's if it's right, I think all time notoriety notoriety benefits you if it's tied to something like like it's a uh, which I think he's great. It's a librarian. Uh, I forgot his name, but I I, uh, I think I follow him on Twitter. He posts like all these positive, you know, things for kids to read books, and you know he gets he he has all these viral videos, and that could possibly turn into something to where he's. Um, no, he get a PBS deal or something. Might get his own like kid TV show. You know, yeah. reading books or, or a YouTube show like with Tabitha Brown, like that and with vegan stuff. Like that turned into a whole her viral moments turned into a thing because all that stuff is plausible because people buy people are on the vegan wave. People are making vegan recipes on TikTok. 
and that all that shit made sense to where that benefited her and put her in a position to where she actually wants to act. And so now she getting agents now that put her in a position to see, you know, her old, cause I think she has act reels. I think she has actual acting credits. Like she was on Will and Grace. She had actual oh, wow. lines on that show. And so it's like, wow. Hey, you, if you didn't know I acted, here's my actual resume of me doing shit. So I think in some ways it can actually benefit you, but yeah, I just get tired of that shit. It's just annoying. It's <laughs> like, you know, you be on the internet and it's like, I don't want to, I think I'm, I want to be that whole tip person, but it's like, you don't want to fall into the game of like how these ag- algorithms work with, Oh, I have to show my kids or I got to do some funny shit on that. Like, I don't want to have to, re- you know, be a, dumbed down version of myself to engage people I, to me that's natural and i don't want to do that yeah and that's why i hate about instagram instagram is exactly that now it's basically yeah. you're showing people your life but you're doing regular mm-hmm. things like yeah no, regular like waking up because yeah. <laughs> i'm waking doing some up story stuff now where i know lee you may feel away but I'm, I'm about to do some insta story videos talking about this <laughs> to the listening audience, I'm showing him a book of the the Entangled Queen. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm oh lord! To, oh lord! Listen, I, listen. Speaking listen, of terrorists, okay. Speaking of notoriety. <laughs> listen, I'm gonna tell you an instant story. I'm like, listen, I listen. I'm here for the Entanglement Hive. I, I respect it. I'm mm-hmm. here for it. It's actually signed too. I got the signed edition. What's up, Jada? But. I, I I will do stuff that fits my personality where I talk about it on Insta story. I'm not going to do some That's shit cool. out of the way just to engage people. I think it's funny because it's funny that majority of people don't like her and I and I like her. So I think I have an actual perspective to talk about it once I read it. It's it, I, just I like her anarchy. That fits my personality. I don't want to do. Yeah. I like her. I like her anarchy. She's she's an anarchist, and I'm an Aries, so I'm an anarchist too. So I'm like, oh, I get what she's doing. She hates Will. Okay, this is funny. No, now. <laughs> Sorry. this is You're all so, this is funny. That's not. That's the thing. I get. I get completely where she's coming from, though, because yeah, if you've been in those situations, then you don't get it. No, she doesn't hate him. I get completely. I don't. Even, I haven't read the book yet, but I'm sure I'm going to get this perspective. Just from what she said, Jada is that person. I think because her whole life when they got married was she wasn't sold to the idea, but it was a love situation. So she's like, oh, maybe it won't be that bad. I think once they got into it and she fell into this mother role and this uh, this this wife role and she didn't come from that experience. And so her experience of love, she doesn't want to give everything to this and i think she had to put everything on the back because she had an established career before she got with him i think once she got married to him everything focused on what he wanted and and him and he's just steady fucking climbing you know because he has blockbuster hit after hit you know for like five years straight and it's Mm -hmm. like once that becomes the focus and you become a mother i get why she's not saying that she doesn't like the idea of being with will she's saying all the shit that came with that with being being married and and being in a marriage means that she has to sacrifice herself and that's the concept of marriage she doesn't like she loves the concept of being together it's just i don't like that i have to play this role and if i 
if we consider ourselves married, that means I have to play this role and I don't want to do that anymore because I lost myself in the process of being a wife. So that's what she's saying. But people are like, oh, she's cheating on Will. No, they had a clear understanding of what, listen, that's the thing what people don't understand about Hollywood, old Hollywood. There's so many secrets and shit that y'all don't know about. And y'all got flustered over this little shit. Ain't no telling what kind of shit they had going on in the 90s. And y'all just now find them because they told y'all. If y'all knew the real shit, half of these old Hollywood couples, like with Tisha and Dwayne, ain't no type, ain't no telling what type of shit they had going on. And I heard some shit, but it's just stuff that people don't have inside on. And this little shit that y'all know about now, oh, y'all wouldn't be able to take half the shit. And I know some stuff, and I ain't gonna gonna never put it in public, but if y'all knew half the shit some of these celebrities did, y'all would would blow off. Because y'all wouldn't be able to take it. That's the other thing I love about being in L.A. is being like, so like, I always tell people, if you ever want to go to L.A. or move to L.A., Find you a friend from LA because they have all the gossip and all all the tea that you need, like for real, for real. So mm-hmm. I get volunteered these stories. Like I'm not even asking yeah. for anything. They'd be like, "Oh, you know, this person did this. You know, this person did that." Right. And I'm just like, "Yo, we just up here, just at the bar right now. What are you talking about? <laughs> like this part? Wait, my childhood here with this." I just yeah. want a mojito. You just told me everything that <laughs> changed my perspective. Yeah. Tell me all of his love partners, and they're not. Like it's just crazy stuff. So yeah, for I, sure. I don't know. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a different. So what I realize is that Hollywood, LA. There's like LA. There's Hollywood. Those are mm-hmm. the same thing. Yeah. Hollywood yeah. is a twisted reality that you can mm-hmm. never understand unless you're in it. Mm-hmm. It's a it's yeah. twisted. Exactly. The things yes. that you see. So that's mm-hmm. why I don't go. And to Hollywood it's not anymore. normal. That's what the thing. It's not normal. With- the, the little shit that they're telling you that you don't think is normal is actually a lot way more confusing and a lot more weirder. And it's only weirder because you're not, I get it because I've been in it. And that's how I got my introduction was working for artists that, and I'm talking about celebrities. I ain't talking about like, oh, you, it's four, five people that's down the list. Like, no, they're that go-to person that I work for and I'm at these parties. And yeah. You see, like, you, and you know, you don't even realize that some of these people know each other because they're like actors and they're singers, and it's like, and then some of them are older, and it's like, what the fuck is Opie being doing here? It's like Andy Griffin. It's like all these random fucking celebrities that you didn't know that they knew each other, and it's just, it's just a whole thing. But I think people, I think I knew shit was gonna go viral because I was like. Cause it was during COVID and I was like, ain't shit going oh, yeah. on. And mind you, when the August situation happened, he, he put out a single talk about Jada and it didn't catch no, no heat to it. Entanglement. Like, he did that at first. Like it was a little rumors here and there, but nobody really took to it. And then I think it's when he, cause people don't watch the show. I watched Jada's show. He was featured on her show talking about his addiction and had Will show had Will's sister on the show as well. I think that conjured up because that's when he dropped the thing. I think all those unresolved feelings that he had for Jada when he when she brought him on the show that brought that shit back up again. And then that's when because it happened like right after that. And I think he just wanted to feel acknowledged because he didn't have no resolve for the situation. And I think he just wanted her to acknowledge him and that his feelings were valid. 
in a relationship and she acknowledged it and said yeah we had a relationship and did he say anything anything after that no because that's all he wanted was to feel and i get that perspective if you've been in a situation whether or not you were in love or not you connected with somebody and you just wanted to feel like that was real and that you weren't dreaming i got that completely so i don't think anybody was in the wrong i just think they he just wanted to express so and people just took that oh she did all this <laughs> wrong she's a a gaslighter she just all the shit and it's like she said yeah we had a relationship yeah we had this going on that's all he wanted was to feel acknowledged and that it was real <laughs> And once it's he got crazy. Him, he moved on. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy because that moment when Will Smith slapped Chris Watt, Will Smith yeah. instantly became a sympathy figure. Instantly. Did you notice that? Yeah. Yeah, for like, sure. There were some people that were, I mean, the slap was obviously a thing. It was against Chris Rock. Chris Rock has said things about his wife for 30 years. Trying to hit on her and everything, and she wasn't having it. So maybe Chris Rock just didn't understand. You know, it's not cool to keep joking about somebody you've been chasing after for thirty years. But as soon as Will Smith did that, he became a sympathetic figure. Nobody was like, "Oh, he's defending mm -hmm. her man." They're like, "No, Will needs help." <laughs> that was the thing. Denzel had to talk. Denzel, and everybody had to go there and calm him down and stuff. He got an Oscar. <laughs> you right. best actor. Like, and nobody thought to kick him out. Nobody thought to arrest him. He instantly became the sympathy. So when so Jada was like, okay, now I can capitalize off this moment. And I think that's oh, the other thing. Right. It, it, the, the perception is skewed because Jada's trying to do this off the heels of Will still being a sympathetic figure. But she was so the creating, more she does, the, <laughs> yeah, she's creating it. But I'm sure. It takes like two years to create these kind of books. I'm sure the amount of time yeah. it took you to make your album, that's how long. It just that happens when you do book releases. It happens at awkward times. She probably yeah. had these days planned already. Yeah. Just, that's how it probably. happens in the business. It's just awkward timing. That's all it. But I think with the whole slap, which I think is bizarre because if people were that white, especially uh, these color people, were that shocked about that whole slap, they should go down to any low-rated comedy spot where, <laughs> I mean, back in the day, we had to do shows with, R&B acts had to do shows with comedy, comedians, uh -huh. they was getting beer bottles and shit thrown at them, so that, yeah. I mean, that shit ain't different, but yeah. I think with Will Smith's situation, that was completely a trauma response. Yeah, exactly. When I read his yep. book, I was like, oh, this is trauma from his father because when his father was abused and his mom, he was like, he felt bad as a kid because he couldn't do nothing. I was like, oh, because when you do trauma, when trauma stuff comes up, you like, I'm going to do the opposite. Anytime I get a situation like that, that happens again with somebody I love, I'm going to do the complete opposite. Because I related mm -hmm. to that part in the book because I had a trauma response to something nonviolent. And I was like, when I grow up, this is never going to happen again. What this happened, and you create moments, you create your whole life in that. And he had the moment, oh, this moment is here. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to slap because the last time I didn't help my mom. And time I have a chance to help. It's an end of a spectrum, you know, perspective when you're traumatized. And so his perspective was, oh, I have the opportunity. I'm going to slap him. And that's, I think that's all he thought about in that moment yep. was this is my chance to do what I didn't do 40 plus or 45 years ago when I was a kid. I get to relive this again.
and do it the right way in his head. But now it's in front of millions of people. You get a whole trauma response in front of millions of people. It's just that's crazy. And he still, I mean, the, he still, know. we still felt sorry for him. We laughed at, we laughed yeah, at Chris Rock because he's likable. Like you said before, what did we say earlier in the podcast? Likeability. When you're likable, really? it don't give a damn. Especially he has over thirty, even thirty-five, because he was came out in the eighties. He has over thirty-five, almost forty years of likability. Just for like himself, the mm-hmm. TV shows, the movies, the hip hop albums, all likability. People know him. Like when you're known like he is and revered he is, you can slap, he could slap his mama. They still, you see the thing with Kanye. Kanye gave you goddamn graduation. People, college dropout, people still revere that goddamn album. And that's why they give him passes and all the weird shit he does. Cause that likability of, <laughs> hey, you made me feel like this. I was in high school when this came out, or I was I graduated from college. Grabbing on to nostalgia, yeah. Yeah, you just grab it on nostalgia. That's what Will Smith is. Fresh Prince of Bel Air, getting yeah. jiggy with it, Big Willie style, like all that shit. You know, if your likability, if you're and Jada's likability, because she doesn't have she she has that um, the likability factor for black women. But some yeah. of that's kind of faltering too because again, people hold marriage and monogamy. When that starts coming into play and whoever's the blame for it, that's who gets the brunt of it. And of course, it's a black woman that's perceived as cheating. So of course that's not gonna be taken well. Well, I think also men. with Jada, uh she was was Will Smith was married while she met Jada. So I think there's this yeah. kind of side chick perception that she's never been able to Maybe outrun. I think general people, the general population knows that Will and Jada Smith have been married and they've been married for a long time. But I don't think, unless you were in the 90s, you would not know that he had the first wife. And when he divorced his first wife, he moved, him and Jada moved right behind the house, right behind his ex wife's house. They lived next door to each other because he wanted to be there for his son Trey. And so I think there's this kind of side chick perception that. Jada has not been able to outrun. So when she mm-hmm. does things that don't, I guess, coincide with that perception of what a married woman should be, people just call on her. And I think that's where we got to let up a little bit because it's like, okay, like, I'm sure both of them got married for the right reasons. I'm not sure what would be the benefit of Jada marrying Will if she didn't see Will's potential, where he was going to go, because in terms of black men, I can't name. It's like him and Snoop, who are like the most popular black men. You know, most popular, not the best. It's like Snoop. Mm-hmm. It's him. Maybe Denzel. Mm-hmm. Obama. It's rarefied air up there. Will Smith is in mm-hmm. rarefied air. Mm-hmm. Jada Pickett Smith is not in that rarefied air. Uh, in terms of just mm-hmm. famous black women like Beyonce, mm-hmm. yes, you know, freaking Fantasia, like there's certain yeah, names Rihanna. you name, yeah, Rihanna. Rihanna, yeah, there's certain names you name her, like there's certain, there's like a lightning rod of Nicki Minaj, even where everybody knows how pop- they are, they're popular. Jada's not that, but she's that, unfortunately, through her husband. Even though she has her own acting career and she's as talented as Will. She's a punk rock freaking singer. She's a punk rock band. 
If you see the stuff that Willow's doing, by the way, Willow is killing it. Killing their music right oh, now. Oh, my God. Killing it. Killing it. Whether you need to be comforted, soothed, or relaxed, soul savviness got you. The ultimate getaway. You are listening to the Sounds of Soul Savviness podcast, where we are sure to put your mind, body, and soul at ease.